We've got a few moments left now to finish this series uh, that we're going to be doing today, uh, finishing up today in the book of 2 Timothy. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you haven't, don't worry. It will appear on the screen. i just got a question for you to think about. How many decisions do you think you will make today? How many decisions do you make as an adult uh, on an average day? Uh, You've already made hundreds of decisions, where to sit, where not to sit, whether to laugh at the bore jokes or not, all that kind of stuff, some of them conscious, some of them other. So apparently, we as adults make 35,000 decisions every single day. 35,000. Some of you are thinking, no, no, I don't. Yes, I do. That's a decision you've got to make whether you believe it or not. There's another one added to it. There's another one about whether you're going to listen for the next few minutes. There's another one. Some of you who come here regularly are thinking, I've heard James preach before. This meeting finishes in 20 minutes' time. He normally takes at least 50 minutes. Is this going to be one that goes on? Is it going to be short or is he going to speak very, very fast? We'll find out. So it's a decision we've got to make. You know, we all make decisions all of the time. I make decisions. Sometimes they're big, uh, big things and have big consequences. Sometimes they're not. Depending upon your stage of life, your decisions that you make, the consequences intended or otherwise will be quite big on the people around you. Most of the decisions I make in my normal everyday life, the the consequences are lived out not by me, but usually by my wife. So a few years, a few weeks ago, uh, we noticed water leaking through our ceiling. Bit of a problem. Thinking, oh, kids running around. Oh, it's raining inside. And uh, having a bit of fun. And I'm going, Rah! turn the water off. Run upstairs. The bath's leaking. Big problem. Decision I immediately make. I don't need a plumber. I'll sort this out myself. And has to deal with that. So, get the bath, it's leaking. Because I'm a competent kind of guy, bath is no longer leaking. Brilliant. However, unforeseen consequence of decision of not using a plumber is I hadn't noticed the bigger leak, which was the shower is broken and the pipe is broken. And so, the water is now pouring out all over the place. Decision made. Don't need a plumber. I'll fix it myself. No problem whatsoever. Six hours later and multiple trips to B&Q, Ham pops her head around the corner and goes, have you finished, darling? I was like, darling, I'd love to be able to say I have, but no. (laughs) It's still broken. We're basically back to where we were before. Capped off, no leaking, no problem, but no shower. Very sorry about that. So for the last three weeks, we've had no shower in our house whatsoever. We've had a bath, don't worry. We're like clean and stuff. But you have to use a bath, not a shower. Anyway, last Monday, I sometimes make snap decisions. And last Monday, I'd ridden my bike, and I was sitting in the bath, and I thought, hey, here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to be an excellent husband. I'm going to lovingly serve my wife. I'm going to fix the shower today. Ham was out. The older two kids were at school. The youngest was asleep. I thought, brilliant. I'll sort it out. Not thinking it had taken six hours, three weeks before, and I'd failed miserably. And I had about 40, 45 minutes before everything needed to be done. So I decided to get around fixing it. No problem. Water starts coming everywhere. Big problem. Even bigger problem, hand turns up. I've now had to turn the water off at the stopcock because there's no water in the house at all. No problem, I think. Not thinking about the fact the reason she was out is she'd been for a run and she's turned up absolutely sweating everywhere. And she's like, what do you mean there's no water? I'm like, oops, sorry. However, I'm a resourceful kind of guy and I've worked out that the water in our house, actually it's not working in our house, but the outside tap, it absolutely is. So... I go and get the hose pipe, 
and I don't make her stand outside. I run the hose pipe all the way upstairs into the bath, fill it up. Darling, no problem for you whatsoever. Jump in the bath. I'll even boil the kettle to warm it up. Doesn't work. So Han has this freezing cold bath, gets herself clean. She's incredibly gracious and generous to me. And so she smiles at me as she gets out of the bath and she says, thank you so much for my bath. And then she pulls me close, really close, and whispers with a, smile on my, with a smile on her face and whispers in my ear, fix it or I'm selling your bike and paying, paying for a plumber. <laughs> so I fixed it. All sorted, everything's fine, shower's working until I discovered there's actually another problem that's leaking from somewhere else. No idea what I do. Am I going to call a plumber? No, because I want this to be a sermon illustration about perseverance in probably two or three years' time. The spirit we're looking at today, 2 Timothy, this whole chapter uh, is, it could be lots of other sermon illustrations about stupidity and all the rest of it as well, but this whole book of 2 Timothy is all about decisions and decisions that we make and the consequences thereof, the decisions that we make. 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is Paul writing, Paul who has, writing to Timothy, Paul who has spent 30 years pouring his life out for the sake of the gospel, gone through good moments and terrible moments, hardship and trial, Moments of rejoicing and celebration, moments of trial and tribulation and difficulty, he's poured it all out. Why? Because he knows there's a reality that this life is very short. And yet what we do in this life and the decisions that we make in this life echo for all of eternity. If this entire stage is all of history and all of eternity forever and ever, and just imagine it went on and on and on and it never stopped and it built all the way through our neighbors and all the way down the road, it just keeps going. This life is this little white bit here. It's that short. And what we do in this little white bit here and the decisions that we make in this little white bit here Determine what happens to us for this and 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 this for all time. The decisions we make here and now echo into eternity. They've consequences for us. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Don't muck around. There are lots of important things, Paul says to Timothy, that, that go on in this little two-centimeter white strip of life. Lots of good things that you can invest your time in. Lots of things that are worthwhile and fun and, and give yourself to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But nothing matters as much as what this is. Don't make any decisions in this bit that result in this bit being forfeited. Give yourself to making wise decisions in this bit so that you might enjoy this bit for the rest of the time. Preach the word. There's lots of important things. Nothing as important as this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Whether it suits us and whether it's convenient or whether it's not. The gospel comes to us, this preach the word, often in very inconvenient moments. We're not looking for it. Don't think we need it. And then bam, the truth comes and the reality comes. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. Where are you going to spend it? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Don't be like them, Timothy. Don't live as if this is all there is, thinking that it doesn't really matter what you do because no, 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 it really does. Live with all of this. 
Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've done all this. I've lived everything, Paul says, in this life, recognizing that everything matters here, and I'm giving every decision I've made, I'm thinking very carefully about it, because I want what happens here to be of way more significance, because obviously it is, than just what happens here. He says, I've done it. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then he goes on with a whole load of personal instructions, and we'll leave it there. You know, have you ever thought about why Paul was in prison? Like, why was he in prison? He wasn't in prison because he was a criminal. He wasn't in prison because he nicked something. He wasn't in prison because he'd been a naughty boy. He was in prison not because he was telling cute spiritual stories or just nice things to get a giggle and have a laugh and, and everybody feel happy about themselves, pat themselves on the back. He was in prison be, not because he was saying God's real, not because he was saying God loves you, which is absolutely true. God's real. He loves you. He's in prison because he's declaring the truth that there is a king who rules above all earthly kings and that his name is Jesus. That he came once as a baby and he's coming back again as the triumphant king of kings and lord of lords to rule for all of this eternity. And on that day when he returns, Paul teaches us elsewhere in the Bible, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is lord to the glory of God. Whether you want it or not. If you declare it here and confess it here, this bit is wonderful. You don't, you're going to spend this bit declaring he is Lord and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and bowing the knee and you ain't going to enjoy it. That's what Paul says. That's why he's in prison. Because folks don't really very much like the idea that there's a judge. And yet Paul says here there's a judge. There's one who's going to judge everything we do. And every decision that we make and everything we do is going to stand. We're going to stand one day before him and be held to account for it. And Paul says to Timothy, don't be like Demas or any of the other people you can read about in the moment who live as if that is all it is. Live as if this is all there is. And the thing is, when you think about it with a judge, most of us, actually, we don't really mind the idea that God might be a judge. We quite like the idea that God's a judge because we quite like the idea that people will get judged ultimately if they deserve it. Well, evil, good. Of course they deserve to be judged. They can rot in hell. That's where that phrase comes from. Oh, you quite like the idea of a judge we just don't like the idea that we're going to be judged unfavorably. Other oh, people, yeah, 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 really evil people. What's evil? Well, basically anyone worse than me. What we don't like is the idea that we're going to be judged as well. We often attack God for not being judging enough. Come on, why are you allowing all this evil? It's a request actually for judgment. And then at the same time, we often attack God for judging too much. Well, who are you to say that I can and can't do? Why do you care what I do behind my own closed doors? What is it? What, who gets to determine that? See, we're not objecting to the idea of judgment. We just don't like the idea that the object of that judgment will not go favorably for us. So because we all have different standards, the thing is we need a righteous judge. And God, if he's God, like just logically think about it. Forget whether you theologically believe it or not. Just logically, if God exists, in order by definition to be God, he must be perfect. And if he's not perfect, well, he's not really God in any meaningful sense of the word. And if he therefore is God, and if he is real, and he, God is a judge, he must, again, just by logic for a moment, he must be a perfect judge. One who can't compromise his own moral standards. 
And it may be an inconvenient truth for many of us, but here's the reality. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I love the message version of that. Sooner or later, we'll all have to face God, it says, regardless of our conditions. We're all going to appear before Christ and we're all going to have to take what's coming to us as a result of our actions, either good or bad. How we live in that little bit affects all of this little bit. The question I have to ask myself is, how am I going to measure up on that day? And 1 Samuel 2.3 says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Not by me, by him. I don't know if any of you have ever been in the situation where you're in a room full of people, and someone talks about something, and you start blagging it. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm an expert in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just chatting, and everyone's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So you sound like you do. Wow, I'm sure none of, I've never done this, I know. But I just, <laughs> but you're in, you're in that thing. You're like, oh, yeah, sure. So, oh, that's interesting. And then an actual expert opens their mouth. And you're like, oh, why did I say something? You, I feel so pathetic. I feel I'm really embarrassed now. Everyone knows I'm an absolute charlatan and a fraud. Like, everybody knows this about me. Here's the thing. One day, even the most seemingly sorted and well-held-together people, even the rich, even the powerful, even those who kind of think they've got it all sorted on the outside, who people look at them and go, yep, they've got all their ducks in a row, whatever phrase you want to use, even those, every single one of them, one day will stand before the all-knowing gaze of Jesus Christ. And they're going to discover that feeling that they can't blag it. They can't talk their way out of it. They can't bargain their way out of this one. How can you fool an all-knowing all-powerful, all-perfect, righteous judge. And the Bible says God weighs the evidence and he reaches a verdict. Now here's the thing. When it's all stripped away, when it's just me standing in front of the mirror and I'm not putting on a front to anyone else and I can be honest with myself, I can look at myself and I know I've fallen short of my own standards. Man, I do it on a daily basis. I disappoint myself. I think, you idiot, why did you do that? Why did you say that? Why did you... When all the front has gone, I fall short of my own standards. And I'm me. And just in case any of you are wondering and freaking out about it, I'm definitely not God. I know that. You know that. We can put up all the pretense we want, but we know we're not. And God, if he is God, if he is real, he knows everything. And you can go before a jury in this life in your human kind of speaking, humanly speaking, and even the guilty can get off. And sometimes, actually, sadly, the innocent can be convicted as well because of anomalies in the evidence, the skill of the lawyers, how much money you've got, whatever, because the jury make a mistake. It ain't so with God. No one can bribe him. No one can talk their way out of anything. Daniel 5.27, you have been weighed in the balances. You've been weighed in the scales and you've been found wanting. You know, he's a judge who weighs the evidence and passes the sentence. And that's actually what Judgment Day is all about. We actually so often think Judgment Day is the day where we'll stand there and it will be weighed up. Have they done all right? Have they done? No, no, no. God has already weighed the evidence. He's already delivered the verdict, and the verdict is guilty of every single one of us. 
here's what the message that Paul preached. Because actually it's exceedingly good news. Because if you want to know good news, you've got to know there's some bad news first, right? Or else it doesn't really mean it's good news. It's just news. Well, yeah, well, whatever. It's only good news when you know there's an issue first. And knowing that you're guilty means this is where the good news comes in because Jesus took the guilty verdict for us. And when, so when we stand on judgment day, the sentence now over our lives simply depends on whether we have accepted Jesus' taking of the guilty verdict for, on our behalf. And so therefore we're declared righteous or whether we're not. This is what the gospel is. This is why it's really good news because yes, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and yes, the wages of sin is death but God who is rich in mercy has made a way for the scales now to be tipped in our favor and that's why the gospel is the most wonderful news ever because though your sins were like scarlet, now you, they have been washed and they shall be as white as snow on the cross where Jesus bled and Jesus died and Jesus took all the guilt and all the punishment where he died in our our place, it means now that those who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord shall be saved, shall be redeemed, shall be restored, and shall be guaranteed a glorious eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the wonderful good news that we get to inherit. We had it in our worship. John 10, 10, he comes to give us life to the full, both life now in this bit. It really is a life worth living, a life free from guilt, free from shame, free from anxiety, free from worry and concern about the future. We heard that in our time of worship, but it's also a life that is abundant. It means it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on forevermore, knowing the riches and the glory of God and the offer is available to you. But you have to come and take it. You have to come and say, yeah, Lord, I want that. I mean, I confess. I believe. I accept that I, I have done stuff that is not right and pleasing in your sight. And now I trust in you. And you know what is so wonderfully exciting about the good news? No one gets there on their own merit. So none of us are better than anyone else. And not a single one of us either is outside of the reach of God either. In Matthew chapter 1, probably my most famous, now I understand it, my most famous, most, my favorite bit of the Bible, Matthew chapter 1, okay, is a list of names. Literally, you read and you think, what is this? Oh, the son of, son of, son of, son of. And you think, why is that here? Do you know why it's there? Because it is showing us the genealogy, the earthly family, the family tree of Jesus himself. It's showing us where he's come from. And at the same time, it's giving us a picture of the family that he has come for. So God so loves the world that he sent his son to become the descendant of Abraham, a former moon worshiper who lied about his wife multiple times, who took advantage of his slave girl, forgiven and free. He sent his son to become the descendant of Tamar, who dressed up as a prostitute to trick her father into having sex with her. Messed up to the extreme, forgiven and free. He sent his son to become the descendant of Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. He sent his son to become the descendant of Ruth, who was a migrant foreign worker from the Gentile nation of Moab. He sent his son to become the descendant of Uriah's wife. It's so messed up, he doesn't even give her his, her name. It's Bathsheba, we know her name. And yet David, the one who committed this adultery with her, forgiven and free. He sent his son to become the descendant of Rehoboam and Ahaz and Manasseh, who not just the vilest kings of Israel, but like some of the vilest humans who have ever walked the planet, they find themselves in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's not what you have done or who you are. It's who he is and what he has done for you. There's no one too messed up. There's no one too junked up. There's no one too good. There's no one too bad. There's no one who's done anything in their past, will do anything in their future, that if you don't come to Jesus Christ, believe with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he won't forgive you and add you into the family. That's the gospel. And you know what? 
a crown of righteousness awaits. A crown of righteousness awaits. Do you know what that means? It means we will be perfected in righteousness when we die. We're going to be made perfect, just as Christ is when we die. And at the same time, we're going to be rewarded for the measure of righteousness that God has worked in us in this life, which means what you do here really, really matters. The decision that you make to surrender to that King of Kings and Lord of Lords means that you will have an eternity spent celebrating that and celebrating him or an eternity away from him. Some people say, how is it loving for God to send people to hell? Well, hell is just being away from God for all eternity. And if you don't want to spend that now and you don't want to spend it for all time, what can be fairer than that? (laughs) And yet how we live here really matters. And Paul says to Timothy, I fought the fight. I've kept going. I didn't give up. Because what in the end is rewarded is a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Not necessarily a life of achieving great things or a life of great results, but a life of trusting Jesus. A life of constantly welcoming and treasuring Jesus. Basically a life of loving Jesus, which is exactly what Paul says here in verse 8. This reward will be rewarded to those who have loved Jesus and his appearing. So keep going. In the knowledge that in Christ we now find ourselves entirely, past, present, and future, entirely surrounded, entirely encompassed in by him. So when we think of our past now, having died with him, we can look no further back than our past in him. So Christ, not our failure, is now our history. You're not defined by the stuff you've done in the past. You're defined by Jesus. And his perfect righteous life has been credited to you. Right now, in our present, united to him, we now share in his glad and joyous life and his right standing before the Father. And filled with the Spirit, we're made to be more like him. And in the future, the judge of all the earth is also our faithful Savior. And when he appears, we will be with him, we will be like him, and we will be co-heirs with him. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am sure that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our God. Which basically is another way for ending 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What wonderful news is that? Nothing compares to this, the name of Jesus. What happens here? It's decisions we make right here, right now. This time tomorrow. This time the day after. This time the day after that. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is unseen. And it all echoes for all of eternity. Where are you at with the judge? Are you right? Are you right? Do you know that that guilty verdict stands over you, yet is taken in Christ forgiven and free for all eternity. Do you know it? Because if you don't know it, you don't know when your time comes and that day of judgment will be a terrifying day. You do know it. Oh, wow, am I giddy with excitement about what is to come. I mean, I'm kind of hoping I'll see my kids grow up and maybe have grandkids and one of them will play for Monday night or something. Like, like, I don't know. 
But even if they don't, I am giddy with excitement of what is to come. Because I ain't worried about that judgment day. Because the judgment's been passed on Christ. And what a reward for those who love him now. So what I'm going to invest my life is pouring everything out in that two centimeters. The 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 100. By the time my kids, probably 150, I don't know, with vitamins and stuff these days. However many years. I hope not. However many. I'm going to live it out for the glory of God for all eternity.